Dave Rierick is a sailor and the author of Spirit of a Dream, A Sailor's Ultimate Journey Around the World Alone. This is Dave Rierick. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Uh, well, Dave, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for taking the time to do this. Um, I, 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 we were just saying before we started here that uh, one of my friends, uh, sort of, uh, you know, his family you're you're close to, uh, and he had texted me saying, you know, you got to talk to this guy basically, and he um, he told me about your story and. I started looking into it and you are a guy who has beyond, you know, just all the sort of sailing experience you've had adventure experience. Uh, you circumnavigated the globe by yourself, uh, which th- this is a task that if it were done hundreds of years ago, I mean, w- would have landed you in the pages of history. Um, and also would have probably been impossible. Um, and, I'm to do by yourself. Uh, I'm I'm curious because the ocean is this really raw thing, and it it's whatever you you know whatever one believes in. This is clearly by definition like a higher power than us, um, and it can be quite fearsome. Um, I, I don't sail very often, but I do surf, and even that you realize like, ooh, I'm not in command of this thing. Um, you have to adapt to it rather than adapting it to yourself. Um, and so like, what, what made you want to do this? It seems like it could be like quite scary. Uh, that's a, that's a very in-depth question. Uh, and um, there's a lot to the answer of that. Um, you're, you're right in the fact that the ocean is this amazing raw entity. Um, as most people are quite aware the ocean and water on the world on the earth you, you know makes up 75 percent of the the continent the earth the the masses of the surface of the earth so it it um and in so many ways the ocean dictates our lives through the environment um through storms through you know they they like to say when i when i speak to a lot of young kids at, at schools and stuff i i try very hard to impress upon them that um you know, if you can step onto, like, I, I come from the Great Lakes. So when I step onto or get on a boat on the Great Lakes, from there, I can go anywhere in the world through water, through the oceans, just as a, as a plastic bottle, a trash can um, float around the world. Um, so effectively, you know, we're all connected by this ocean. And I, I'm not a religious person, but in the sense that um, I understand that there are forces and powers um uh energies that we're all a part of being a part of this planet you know to to your comment about it being a raw thing it, it truly is in its true state raw and uh, in one of the statements in my book people say what do you love about or why i like you know single-handed sailing is because when i'm out there it's just me nobody's lying to me nobody's telling me the checks in the mail Nobody's telling me I'll be on your job site in three days and we'll have it all done by the end of the week. It's up to me. It's me and nature. And I have to um, balance my person in that nature 
and respectfully within that nature in order to survive it. So I have to have a certain amount of skills and I have to, to be uh, firm about my approach to managing the weather or what's going on in order that I survive these things because the, the ocean's relentless. Whether it's a sweep of a wave, I can be gone and never heard from again. Um, so it's a very um, self-fulfilling um, for me, it's very self-fulfilling experience to be as close to and as at one with the rawness of life and nature and the universe as I possibly can get. I can get the same thing being on land as well. Don't get me wrong. It's not just the ocean. You can be up in the mountains. You can be in the middle of the prairies of Nebraska. You can be in the middle of the deserts of the, of the, of the Southwest or, or Europe. And you, if you, if you can open your your soul to the nature around you and accept your place in that overall balance, it's a pretty amazing um, uh, enlightenment, I should say, for lack of a... There's some crazy words in there, I guess, but it truly, to me, it truly is an enlightenment. Yeah. Um, and I can get the same thing in downtown Chicago. I, I It's a little tougher, but um, I can also recognize as I walk down the street that the simple slightest uh, body movement that I make has somebody coming towards me adjusting their path or how they're going to move when we cross paths. And so in the same way as me out, out trying to outrun a cyclone in this in the Indian Ocean, you know, we're all sort of adjusting our paths to find the balance in this overall universe. So <clears throat> that's that's kind of like the epilogue to how I got started in the soul of sailing. So I started sailing as a very young man, about 12 years old. A friend of mine took me sailing on a sunfish off the shores of Lake Michigan. And I just got deeply enthralled with it at that point in time. And, you know, um, when I was a 12-year-old boy, you know, going to the library and getting books was not thought to be a very cool guy type of thing. Right. Um, it was, you know, grab the baseball bat and mitt, let's go play baseball. Now let's go down to the library and find a book on sailing. So I would sneak the sailing books home and read them cover to cover and take them back the next day. In 1969, the first person to sail single-handed around the world nonstop was a guy by the name of Robin Knox Johnson. So that was real, relatively current uh, event in my life. Now, the first person uh, credited with sailing around the world was Joshua Slocum back in the late 1800s. He didn't do it nonstop. He did it with many stops in various different lands going around the world. So it's been done a number of times in that sort of manner. But the whole, um, let's say the 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 um, inception of the sport of single-handed racing uh, across the Atlantic or doing races by yourself on a boat really is from the 1960s, 1970s, and on up through current day. So it's a relatively new challenge, much like, and it, you know, in its day, just like Everest thought was thought to be, you know, you couldn't climb uh, Everest, and it finally was climbed, and sailing single-handed around the world was thought to be an incredibly challenge and dangerous challenge to take on, and yet it's been done. And nowadays there are actually, you know, full-blown, the Vendée Globe is a full-blown event out of France, single-handed racing around the world by multi-million-dollar programs um, with huge fame to the to the level of NASCAR is in the U.S. So it's been it's been evolving throughout my whole life. So it was easy for me to be 
um, engaged with it and to follow along with it. So at that young age, at 12 or 13, 14, 15, I pretty quickly decided that that was a that was just something I was about. And um, I don't come from a sailing family. I, you know, my, my father sailed a time or two, I suppose, at a summer camp or some summer event, but there was no, um, there was no easy pathway for me into this. So I just had to be persistent and continue to go after it and to keep finding myself in, in various different entities or places where I could get more and more sailing experience and continue to uh, push my, my level of skills. So it took me a little bit longer than maybe, um, you know, some other folks, guys and gals who grew up on the coast and, and near big sailing events might have found themselves in a position to uh, take off in these larger events at a much earlier age, maybe in their 20s or 30s. But I still had to make a living and, and pay my bills and and find my way in the world. So I um, at every chance I got, I, I raced all summer long on the Great Lakes and sailed on many different boats and continued to advance my career that way. And then finally got to the point where in my mid-50s, uh, one of my very dear friends who had become quite successful and wanted to advance his sailing career asked me to take care of his boats for him. And then one day he sent me an email that said, you know, if you really want to do this single-handed race around the world, we need to get you a boat and get you doing it. Right. And that, that was the first step of a long journey, but actually the millionth step of an even longer journey. Man. Um, yeah. The, you, you know, what's fascinating is I had one other guy on this podcast who was a sailor and he uh, his boat broke in the middle of a storm and he wound up spending, I think it was like 72 or 76 days adrift at sea in a life raft landed, mm -hmm. I think, in like the Caribbean or something. Um, sure. And Stephen Gallagher, right? Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, so you've heard of this story. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is something like that, how, I mean, I guess it's hard to say how likely that is, but when you're going around, you talked about like outracing a, a cyclone in the Indian ocean, like, boy, there, there must've been some real brushes with death. It's well, it's no, no doubt. It's a very edgy game. Um, it's something that, uh, Probably, uh, possibly for me, because it had take it was such a long journey for me to get to that point that I had quite an, uh, uh, a lengthy time to contemplate all the possibilities that could happen out there. And maybe being in my fifties, I might have been uh, a little more cognizant of my vulnerability than, say, in, in my twenties, where I thought I was invincible. As we all know, that's kind of the the, the process of life for. Uh, when we're young, we think we're invincible. This is never going to happen to me. And you get old and you realize, you know, it does happen to people. And I'm just as vulnerable as anybody else is. So then the challenge becomes, well, how good can you actually be? You know, can you, um, how good are your skills at managing these storms and getting through them? Fully aware that the the foolish mistake, the unprepared mistake, um, the um the non-conscious uh, mistake is the one that's probably going to get you in trouble. There are going to be mistakes that you can't perceive. There's going to be failures to parts of equipment that you can never see the failure coming until it happens. And then you have to be able to, to you know, compartmentalize your mind and deal with the issue when it happens, as as Steve did when his situation was the boat sank and you ended up in a life raft. And now 
you know, your now your goal is well, stay alive as long as you possibly can. Don't ever give up, and and maybe maybe the lot will pay off. Um, and in his case, it certainly did. It's a wonderful story. And there have been other people who've had the, you know, similar experiences, and I've had the for- good fortune of meeting them as well. Um, so it's you know, you I guess you consciously are aware of the fact that you know one misstep can end it all. And it could be as simple as um, you're, you're, you know, we, I, you wear a, a, a life a life vest or a PFD with a with a harness and a tether, so I can clip myself to the boat at all times. So in the event that I get, you know, a, a, a strange movement and the boat throws me off balance and I trip and go over the side, I can possibly haul myself back on board. Sometimes that's a, that's quite a challenge in and of itself. Um, but so you, you know, you have this recognition that it can be as simple as, you know, leaving the harbor and a day later, you're never seen or heard from before because you, you thought, oh, I don't need my tether today. And you, and you end up tripping on a line and going over the rail and then the boat sails off and because the boat's on an autopilot, it's sailing by itself. It's not going to just stop and you're going to swim back to it and get back on board. Or it can be, you know, a medical issue. It can be so many different things can take you out. And I guess you just, in your own mind, you you write those scenarios and you live them out and you kind of, you, you kind of accept them. And in the same way that when you hop in a car and head down the LA freeway, you know, you recognize there's a, by, by nothing of your own nature, you might not get to where you're going. Um, yeah. So I mean, it's, that, that That's sorry. Go, go ahead. Sorry. We, we, I was going to say it, it, it to me, it's, it's, it's it's part of the book of life experience that you're going to end this life somewhere along the line. And the, just like, you know, I'm not a gambler, but a few times I've been to Las Vegas, okay. you know, my, my goal is to make $20 last on the craps table as long as I possibly can. Right. And in life, you know, I know it's going to end at some point or other. So I want to make sure that I don't waste much of it, uh, that I get as much out of it as I can. And, um, you know, you, you you kind of look at it that way. I think totally, yeah, yeah. And that that's one of those things that you talked about working. You know, uh, you you were not a professional uh, sailor in the sense that you could earn your living uh, purely from uh, riding boats around. Um, what what were you doing at the time? So yeah, I, I'm a building contractor by trade, a carpenter by trade. Um, I don't um I don't have a big construction company or have a lot of money or whatever. I'm really just basically a tradesman and always have been all my life. Um, but sailing has been my passion. And so um I had I had my opportunities to take professional jobs as a sailor, as a paid crew member on boats and all, but I I was always fearful that being a professional sailor would take that that joy away from it for me. Mm-hmm. To where I um you know was constantly having to go somewhere to meet someone else's time frame and then sail their boat or take care of it or whatever it was based on their time frame and their demands. And I, I, sh- I shied away from that and stayed a carpenter until I got the, the opportunities to do what I did. Do you ever wish that you had become a professional sailor? Only for the glory parts of it all. Right. You know, like in a Walter Mitty sense, I can go back and think, gosh, you know, if I had been a professional sailor in my thirties, I'd, be a captain of a really big boat and you know this and that and all that stuff but there's so much messiness behind all those success stories <laughs> that um i i i don't really regret that at all 
I, um, I, I'm very thankful for the sailing opportunities I got, the people, the wonderful people I sailed with, um, so many, uh, you know, hours of day, days worth of hours of time sitting on the rail with different sailors, telling different stories throughout life. Just some amazing people I've met through the course of the whole sailing career that I, I really don't, um, I don't have any regrets for not having chosen that as a as a pathway for a career. Well, when you said the messiness of, of those success stories, what, what are you talking about? Like a behind the music kind of thing? Yeah, you know, the behind the stage, you know, behind the music. You know, when when the when the audience is done applauding, and you know the rock star walks off the stage, somebody's got to clean up all the, you know, pack up all the stores and get it on the bus and get it down to the next thing and get it on down to the next the next road to the next show and pick up the the trash and sweep up everything and mop the theater and clean all the chairs and pick up all the popcorn and, and all that stuff and set it all up for the next show. Um, so, you know, you, you might do uh, most, a lot of people are familiar with the America's cup racing. And so, you know, you see the stuff, the coverage on TV, the, the great races, the helicopters are flying overboard is all the accolades and all the celebrityness and the interviews and the uh, news podcasts and, but, you know, the day after that, there's a huge black hole. The race is over with. Um, you know, you get up in the morning and you, you want to go have breakfast. And a few people remember you at breakfast and you get on a plane, and you fly back home and a few of your friends at home say, hey, good job. But you get home and you find out that the bills are still coming in the mailbox. The mortgage is still due. The the car isn't didn't get worked on when you were gone. The, the, the grass needs to be cut. The, the flowers in the backyard didn't get watered. You know, whatever else is going on in your life. Not to mention if you're the paid captain taking care of a boat and, you know, the the fly-in crew um, gets on the jet and flies home or, or however they're going and you're stuck with a boat that's got to get from Miami to San Francisco for the next racing series. And you got to pack it all up, clean it all up, put it in boxes, get it on trucks, get it out of there. You're always behind schedule. You're always scrambling to get it done because uh, the race starts at the next race start on time, not delayed by two days because you're waiting for a part. It starts on time. So... You know, in the in the couple of years that I did that, it was great fun, but I could see after a ten or fifteen or twenty year period of time, it would it would get to be quite a chore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I you avoided that by not committing to that mode of life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I still had to, I still had to do plenty of it, but I did it voluntarily, and not you know there there was uh, there isn't that obligation that there is with work, so. You know, sitting, staying behind to help guy pack up a boat and get it off to the next regatta is one thing when you're doing it voluntarily and laughing and having a good time and sitting down for a burger and beers afterwards. It's another thing when you're being paid to do it and everybody's like, you know, we're, we're falling behind schedule here. We got another hour. We got to get this thing on. This truck's got to be on the road in an hour here, guys. Come on, get, pick it up. Let's go. Um, I avoided that part of it all. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I'm, I'm okay. So you're. This is this is kind of an expensive hobby, then. No, I mean these boats are are they cost, especially the the kinds of boats. If you're sailing around the world, I imagine. It, do you know how expensive a boat like that is? I do because we had this boat specifically built for this program. Okay. Um, so when my when my sponsor you know stepped up to his side of the the his and his wife's side of the commitment to ha- get a new boat built in New Zealand, and and that's part of the whole game as well it's not just 
get a boat and go do this. We we were entered in a race called the Global Oceans Race, which would have been a single-handed event in class 40 boats. So we we then uh, sought out and looked at a number of different designs for class 40s. And the one that I chose was being built in New Zealand. It was a Bruce Farr design uh, being built in Auckland and Wellington, New Zealand. And that's the boat we chose because um, from the from the research I did and the personal experience I did sailing one of the one of the sister ships, I I, I just had this knowing that this is the boat I I needed to have for this race. This was this was a knife I wanted to take to the knife fight, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's one element of the of the sport of racing is you got to make sure you show up with the right boat and the right equipment and be prepared with the right stuff to win the race. Um, certainly, plenty of people show up with a lesser boat, a smaller budget. Um, not quite the ability to have the best sales or maybe the best equipment and things fail and they slow down a little bit and things fail and they slow down a little bit. And those that don't have the breakage and have the best equipment continue to eke out the old rich get richer and the poor fall back. So it is, if you want to be in the top leagues of this game, it's a very expensive sport. Um, now the, the, the top league of single-handed sailing is called the Iamoka sixties, which these are 60 foot boats that are raced single-handed. Um, let me let me back up here a bit. So that's the top echelon of the game in monohull boats. There are trimorans that are, they call them ultims, they're 100, 110 feet long that are raced by single people as well at incredible speeds, but those are, that's a whole different animal. It's like comparing um, NASCAR to um, um, street rods, you know, they're they're not we're not talking we're talking about the same sort of sport but not the same tools yeah. or, or equipment. Um, but so the Amoka sixty the sixty foot boats are the ultimate class. That's the Bondi Globe race single handed around the world in sixty foot boats. The next class down or the next step down to the class forties, which is what I was in, um, and that's often considered the stepping grounds to getting to the Amoka sixties. Um, a lot of the young sailors in Europe and and America as well, but. The French dominate the sport. Um, the Europeans dominate the single-handed sport. And so they they work their way up through Figaro boats, which are smaller ones, and hope to get a class 40. And ultimately, from the class 40, hope to get tapped for a sponsorship for an Iamoka 60. And they might start with a with an older Iamoka 60 and prove their, their worth on that before they get a sponsor who's willing to build a brand-new boat for them at the state-of-the-art design, state-of-the-art equipment, state-of-the-art technologies. And, you know, it's one of the fastest boats in the world. So <clears throat> when we entered the class 40 game, we I had the ability um, with my sponsorship's support to get the best and fastest class 40 I could get my hands on in the world. And so that's what we did. We had the boat built in New Zealand to the class 40 design specifications. And I, I feel pretty confident in saying this, that when when the boat was in its day, it was one of the top class 40s in the world. And so your question was about the expense of all this. So um, at that time, I think we probably spent something in the neighborhood of $750,000 on the boat and the equipment. Um, and then, of course, there's a cost of maintaining the program for a couple of years as you prepare for the race to get around the world. So um, I don't know the specific numbers because yeah. they weren't generally important to me, but I'm sure it's in the seven digits. Yeah. And, and the reason I ask is not just because the, the sort of getting the actual dollar amount, but just sort of putting this in perspective of you saying that, hey, 
you're you're uh, a building contractor, a carpenter by trade, and I think that's like most most people could certainly not afford a, a million dollar plus boat to just go and, and have the time off to go sail around the world. And it's one of these uh, sailing seems like one of these enthusiasms and that uh, I, I know I've had in my life where it's like, man, this is so cool, but damn, is it expensive and difficult to actually do the things you want to do? Um was there ever a part of you that thought to yourself, like, man, maybe I would just like go and try to like grind in my twenties and thirties, make you know as much money as possible, and then you know become like a a boatsman or something like that? Is that like even a, a realistic path? No, it def- definitely is. I think you know the uh, the beauty of youth is is imagination and the and the belief that you can make anything in the world happen. I mean. As you get older, you you still know that you can make things happen, but you begin to understand the realities of what the absolute uh, input is to make things happen, and that you know eighty or ninety percent of it is hard work and ten percent of it's luck. But you know, certainly when I was in my twenties and thirties, I I had my eyes on big projects and big construction ideas that were going to make me millions of dollars, and and then I you know I could buy the boat I wanted to do and do the thing I wanted to do and and be a totally uh, uh, individually sponsored, you know, program. Um, and I'm certain that there are, um, there's certainly situations that that could provide that. Perhaps, you know, you're an avid sailor and, and really enthusiastic about it, and you come from a family of, of some means, and you have some inheritance or whatever, and you can put some of that towards your passion. Um, there's certainly that opportunity for some people. There are other people who, uh, you know, started a software company when they're 25 years old and sold it when they were 30 for, you know, $500 million and now have the opportunity to do these things. But those are very, very rare experiences. And generally those folks, their passion isn't necessarily sailing. Their passion is software, <laughs> you know, right. or, or something else that they, and it's hard for them to imagine. I, I can't tell you the number of people who look at me and go, you know, I would just never have ever even thought about sailing around the world by myself. I love to go sailing, but that would never occur to me. So, you know, whether it's motorcycles, airplanes, artwork, uh, music, um, dancing, theater, juggling, uh, whatever it might be that your passion is, um, pursuing it is, is, is what, you know, you hope to be able to do and, and thank God they have lotteries because, if I'd have worked as hard at winning the lottery as I did at working, I probably had been successful at the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I play a lot of two dollar bets on the lottery, hoping I was going to win, and then I could write my own ticket for my own boat. But yeah. um, the interesting thing is, you know, it's not there isn't a there isn't a a, a freeway to the solution. You know, right. you have to you have to try and and work on so many different. In the same way that I talked about earlier about trying to find where you balance into the into nature or walking down the street, you know, your action causes a reaction on somebody else. Now, you know, your passion is pulling you forward and you are trying to find the the pathway to get fulfillment there. 
and you have to try a whole lot of different things and 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 keep your eye on the prize and and hope that someday it's going to all pay off. And in terms of like your uh, sort of pursuit of this passion, and you mentioned the sort of the glory aspect of things, and you did this circumnavigation of the globe in your fifties, and um, I would imagine that people would say that oh. Uh, I don't know if it's sailing is like your average sport of like a basketball or football where your prime years are your 20s and 30s. Um, But even like mathematicians, their prime years are their 20s and 30s. Um, Same with a lot of artists and stuff like that. And so I think perhaps a lot of people who are young feel like, man, there's this frustrating experience of like, man, I really want to make this passion my full time thing to pursue it as deeply as I possibly can and give as much as I possibly can to this thing that I care about above and beyond the job that I use to acquire the means to continue pursuing it. You know what I mean? Like, did did you ever, was that ever frustrating to you? Did you ever feel uh, that particular way of wanting to, uh, you know, push as far as you could while you were young? I mean, it sounds like you were able to make it work. Um, throughout the course of your life? There certainly was. um, You know, I mean, my particular situation um, is, of course, different than everybody else's. You know, everybody's situation is individually peculiar to themselves and their own set of circumstances. So I had had some responsibilities. Uh, My father died when I was young, and... um, you know, I, I took on some of the responsibilities of being the the patriarch in my individual sibling family. Um, and so I couldn't just toss all, you know, care to the wind and just go for it and just let everything die, you know, let everything fall where it may behind me. Um, I had some responsibilities there I had to maintain. So that that forced me to take a little more cautious path on that whole thing. But certainly there were frustrating moments where I thought, gosh, you know, I'm at my prime here. I'm 30 something. If I don't pull this off, it's never going to happen. And then, you know, gosh, I'm 40. I'm really running out of time. You know, I don't know. Um, certainly, obviously, the physical capabilities uh, uh, change as you get older. And I'm now 65. And and I, I look back to sitting around the world and I think, yeah, I could still do that. But whether I physically could or not, I don't, I, I could do it, but not to the same physical prowess that I did when I was 50. And certainly not the prowess I would have done when I was 40 or 30 or 20, but that's just the way it unfolded in my life, my particular life. Um, you know, the, there was, when I was younger, there were all these inspiring people that would tell you, if you really want it, you'll figure a way to get it. You know, if if there's something you really want in life, you'll figure it out and get it. You know, you'll do what you got to do to get it. And I used to kind of listen to some of that stuff and think, you know, I don't know how that really makes much sense because what you're basically telling me is if you really want to do it, you'll cheat, connive, whatever you got to do to get what you want. Yeah. And I was never going to do that. Um, and there's certainly a lot of people who have done that to get where they wanted to be in life. But um, but there is an element of truth to the fact that if you uh, if you don't see yourself being who you want to be, you're never going to get to that point. You know, it's human nature to prove yourself right. And so if you say, well, I can't, I'll never be able to sell around the world single-handed, chances are you're going to find plenty of reasons why you can't to prove your statement right. 
Yeah. Where on the other hand, if you say, you know, I really, I'm going to do this someday. I'm going to someday do this. If it comes down to me, you know, finally selling the house and taking the fifty thousand dollars and buying an old boat, a couple of bags of groceries, and going off, I'm going to get it done. You see yourself doing it, and you're you're constantly moving subconsciously towards that goal. So there is a certain amount of element too. If you really want to do something, you're going to figure a way to do it. Um, hopefully, without deceiving people or or conniving or cheating or whatever that some people go through to get to that point. But um, you know the. Uh, there, there is every bit uh, a solid evidence in my life of intention that if you intend to do this, and I intended to do it for a long time, it, it, ultimately you're going to get there. Yeah, that's um, it, it, it's an interesting approach because you, I imagine, this is something that was uh, an idea that was like near and dear to you for a while, for decades. Decades, yeah. Man, and then when you're actually you 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 launch off in Rhode Island, and when you're walking uh, like across that dock to the boat, and this is something you've been thinking about for decades, well, what is what is going through your mind? So I, that particular morning, when the actually the evening before, I was sailing the boat from um, the Hinkley Boatyard up in in. Um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, or Portsmouth, Rhode Island, down to the dock in Jamestown, Rhode Island, where I took off from the next morning. And uh, a fellow sailor from Chicago um, and his captain and all called me and asked if they could come down and look at the boat. And I said, well, you know, I'm taking off in an hour or so. If you want to sail with me down to, you know, the next town, which is only like 10 miles away or whatever, you're welcome to come along. And they did. And and um, it was a beautiful evening sail. But um, it was interesting because I had planned on doing it by myself. And I'm sure had I done it, it would have been a very reflective, you know, evening sailing down to the Jamestown Harbor and tying up the boat and then going up to the house and getting dinner and making final preparations. But instead, I had this distraction of uh, FK and and um, his his guys on board. And uh, we had a great evening. Um, and then they asked me, I said, come on, we'll take you out to dinner. I said, no, I, I got a lot to do, guys. I'm leaving in the morning. But that that whole 24-hour period of time was full of people around me. And the, the moment I think you're actually asking about was when I finally untied the lines and was motoring away from the dock yeah. and, and realizing that the number of people around me were getting fewer and fewer and fewer. So there was a couple of boats that decided to escort me. One was a photographer and one was a good friend of mine, Joe Harris. And... Um, you know, I'm out sailing in Narragansett Bay, getting out to harbor, got the sails up, getting the boat kind of balanced in there and stuff. And Joe finally gives me a wave and sails back home. And then the photographer, Billy Black, comes by and takes a couple last photographs and gives me a silent wave and a nod of respect. And he turns back for home. And all of a sudden I look out and I realize, you know, it's happening. This is this is this is for real. You're 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 headed off sailing around the world. You're actually doing this. And my knees actually got weak in a, in a bit. And I, and I got a little teary. And I'm just like, oh, my God. After 50 years or 40 years of dreaming about this and trying to get across here. It's a, it's a pretty uh, emotional moment. And when I say, you know, your wheeze get meek, um, uh, that's exactly I, – I, I, I can't say that it's happened to me more than a couple of times in my life. 
to where you you know you actually felt sort of overwhelmed with emotion and almost in a draining type of thing and like a drain it like all of a sudden all the stuff that's been keeping you going is now going away and you're just actually living in, in real time yeah i don't know if i said that very well or not but um no no i that that makes a lot of sense um and w- one of the one of the things that i i, I think at the age that you did it was probably perfect because you had perspective and you could, you could sort of understand what this sort of meant in your life, in the scope of your life. And, um, I, I would, it it feels like maybe like one of the things that could potentially a pitfall that could happen would be if, um, if you, if you were just so consumed in the process of doing it, that, uh, you weren't able to enjoy it in the moment. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, was that ever either a concern or, um, I mean, you're out there for, I, I forget how many days, but I think it was like close to like a hundred days. So well, there must've been some times where you were not. No. Oh. Oh. Looks like maybe we're back here, Duncan. I think so. Um, I I had a note that came up that said my internet had gone unstable, so maybe I'm the one who got bounced off here. No worries. Um, cool. Just turning off any extra Wi-Fi devices um sweet so what part uh did i did i I lose at um i think i just pretty much finished that last um story about taking off and then it got unstable at that point okay um well what i was saying is i i think that you did this at like a, a good moment in your life even though talking about doing in your 20s and 30s and stuff like that, maybe different physical prowess, um, you had like an appreciation uh, of where you were you were at and what this could like mean in the scope of your life. And so when you talk about your sort of your knees going weak, um, I, I wonder if maybe if you were in your 20s, you would have been so consumed in the process of doing things. Um that you you may not have been able to enjoy it as much. Okay. Back on again here. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm on a hotel Wi-Fi, so that could be a lot of people waking up and starting to load on here, maybe. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, no worries. If if it gets to be, if, if we drop each other again, um, I'm I'm open to doing like a part two at some point uh, to wrap up. I may be able to swap to my phone and go to my phone hotspot too, which might be more stable than the hotel, but let's, let's carry on and see what happens. All right, let's do it. Um, So yeah, I I feel like doing this when you're 50 is actually like in your fifties is like a great time to be doing it because you talk about in this moment, like you're, getting overwhelmed with emotion that you're you're on this trip um i i feel like maybe if you were in your 20s you might have been so in the process of like trying to 
do this and um, less sure of yourself and like less have less of a perspective of like the scope of a life um, that you, you may you may not have been able to enjoy it quite as much in the moment. Um, do, do you feel that way at all? I, I do. I think I think being um, being older when I did it, I probably grabbed an awful lot more from the experience. You know, in the ultimate end, the race that we were um, setting up for got canceled. And so my sponsor said, uh, you know, look, we're kind of all dressed up and ready to go to the dance. So if you want to go ahead and go, um, let's make this happen and just go ahead and go. And so I took the advantage of doing that. And but an endeavor to sort of mitigate the self-indulgence of the sailing around the world just by yourself with, without anything else going on. I, I endeavored to do to try to bring the story back home to to students and kids in classrooms as well as to anybody who wanted to listen and follow along so we spent a lot of time you know uh, blogging off the boat and i had some people on shore that would take the blogs and dress them up and get them up into the internet yeah. and i i think without having the press of a race going on it allowed me to be a lot more retrospective uh maybe a lot more aware of the importance of a balance and environment um in the end of my book, I talk about, you know, I, I didn't set set off to conquer the ocean. I set off to be a part of the ocean and to, to, right. to understand it. And, and I think being, you know, in my 50s gave me that option that I would not have had if I was in my 20s or 30s. Um, although I still had a full respect for the environment and, and a lot of appreciation for the wilderness and the wilds of the ocean and the mountains and stuff when I was younger. Obviously, the older I get, the more uh, more of it I kind of understand because uh, I've lived, uh, you know, a, a greater experience and can now weave those experiences into a into a better tapestry. Yeah. I, so, when you say that option, do you mean the option of sort of taking a bit more of your time, uh, or that op that sort of mental option of looking at this as though you want to be primarily a part of the ocean rather than sort of overcome or whatever um a good question an option may or may not be the right word but um i didn't have the uh the wisdom or the experience at younger years that presented the option to be more of that when i was in my 50s so um it wasn't necessarily an option a choose a choosing of an option as much as it was just another skill set that I had developed over the 20 or 30 years of putting this all together that that gave me a, 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 the ability to see the world in a different way than if I was just racing. Does that make some sense? Yeah, 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 no, totally. And, um, and when you were doing this, did you ever feel a desire? How, first off, how, how long did this entire circumnavigation take? From from the start to the finish was nine and a half months, and that included some stopover time in in um, Bermuda, Cape Town, South Africa, Wellington, New Zealand, mm -hmm. the Galapagos, Panama Canal, and stuff. So I think the ultimate sailing was 156 days total sailing. My my long legs were 42 days from uh, Bermuda to Cape Town, 52 days from Cape Town to New Zealand, 35 days from New Zealand to the Galapagos. The rest of the trips are all about seven days long. Galapagos to Panama, Panama to Florida, Florida 
up the East Coast. That so they rest for, but but, but I mean, <laughs> I make it sound like a week at sea is not that much. It is. It's a lot, but it's not that much when you compare it to fifty-two days at sea. Yeah, fifty-two days at sea. Man, yeah. what did you do with all the waste? Um, so organic waste went into the ocean stuff that, you know, food waste and stuff of that nature, the rest of it, um, I, I bagged up. And the interesting thing is, you know, I got to New Zealand, uh, I got in, you know, after sunset, it was really quite a trying 48 hours getting actually into Wellington, uh, big winds in the Cook Straits, which is typical weather for the Cook Straits, but still a challenge of sailing when you're you know, at 52 days, you're not you're not quite the physical specimen you were when you left. So I was I was weaker and and just wanting to get in. And uh, some friends met me at a dock, and the custom they brought the customs agents down, and they they went through and they asked a few questions and took the papers and stuff. And and I said, well, don't you need to search the boat? And they said, hey, you know, if you're if you're smuggling drugs drugs from South Africa to New Zealand single handed on a boat by yourself, you get bigger problems and that I was searching your boat. <laughs> we laughed and chuckled about that. And then they said, well, where are your garbage bag at? And I said, well, right here, I'll, I'll put them out. I'll throw them out. And they go, no, we have to take them. And I said, what? And they said, we have to take them. We incinerate them because we want to make sure that you don't bring anything, uh, you know, contagious to the island, whether it's bugs or, or some, you know, plant disease or something like that. So they took all my garbage, which was only at that point, maybe three bags full. Yeah. Um, but when you're just one person, you know, you're not making that much garbage. My, my food was all freeze-dried food. So at the end of a meal, it was just a, a rolled up, you know, folded up pouch. Um, uh, water was all consumed in reusable, you know, containers. Um, so there really wasn't a tremendous amount of, amount of waste. Some, some cookie wrappers and some Hershey's Kiss wrappers, but that's about it. <laughs> What, was there a toilet on board? No, the the toilet was basically a bucket. Okay, so a five gallon bucket. And, and did you just toss that in the ocean? Yeah, yeah. Okay, which is which is standard procedure. You know, when you're offshore, offshore more than three miles, you're allowed to discharge overboard, whether you've got a toilet on board or a bucket or whatever it is. We we don't do that on the Great Lakes because those waters are are contained. But, you know, the ocean is, has a tide and currents and, and flushes all the time. And, of course, you know, one human on a boat is nothing compared to a, a, a whale or two out there. Right. Yeah, good point. Um, so you stopped in Cape Town. Well, and what what year, by the way, was this? This was 2000. I took off in 2013 and finished in 2014. So I left on October 2nd of 2013. Okay. And I, I arrived in Cape Town. Um, Maybe three weeks before Christmas, three wow. to four, I think December fifth or something along that line. Yeah, so it's summer down there. Yeah, yeah. Man, that's a beautiful spot. Cape Town is a is a beautiful. I I was uh, I have to admit to being an ignorant American because everything I knew about Cape Town, South Africa, was from the U.S. news during the apartheid years, Soweto and riots and and apartheid and Mandela and De Klerk and all the conflict that was going down there, we just whatever news came off the news, which was never, you know, if, uh, if represented fairly, it was always, you know, more for the drama show. Um, so I really got quite an education being in, in Cape Town, South Africa, and really had a uh, remarkable happenstance in that uh, 
uh, my friend Mary came to meet me and she had arranged for us to go out on a wine tour after like two or three days of being there. And um, the guy who picked us up at, at the hotel to take us on the wine tour, and it was just Mary and I in his van. And he turned out to have been a, a school teacher during the apartheid years. And he and his wife were both anti-apartheid protesters. And they had run, you know, afoul of the government um, agencies. And he was, uh, you know, given given a very short period of time to get out of the country with, with his wife and his kids um, for fear of his life because of the because of the, the noise that they were making in their uh, anti-apartheid protests and such. And so he had to do. He had to leave in the nighttime with his wife and two daughters, and flew to England, and lived in London until Nelson Mandela was freed, and then he came back to Cape Town. So he was able to give us personal history stories of that whole experience, and that was right at the time that Nelson Mandela passed away. So it was everything was um, uh, right there in the forefront of of history, and with this personal guide who had lived it himself personally, it was really. Uh, fascinating. What was your uh, relationship status when you left? Um, you mean single, married, or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, well, I, uh, Mary is a is a life companion. Um, we've been together. At that point, we've been together five years. We're still together now. So, okay. I'm I not married, but but in a long term relationship. Do you um, do you feel like if you had been uh sort of settled down in the traditional sense of married with kids um do you think that this sort of expedition would have been achievable um it is achievable i have other friends of mine who have done it um married with kids or divorced with kids or whatever the relationship was um for me uh you know those are never really options um kids weren't weren't an option for me in this this go around i guess and and they weren't really a um a goal of mine i love kids i spend time with students and working with them and stuff like that it's not that i don't enjoy kids or whatever it is. i love the i love them they are our future but um a married life with kids was just really not part of my life goal or plan this time around yeah when i say around i don't know if i i, I guess that refers a little bit to maybe past lives or future lives you know do you believe in past lives and future lives? I, I do to a certain extent because there's just so much that seems there's so many experiences in my life that seem to be uh, somehow or other, and, and certainly none of us definable or or documentable, but they seem somehow or other connected to something, some other event that happened not in this conscious life, but in some other experience. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know explain that other than to assume that perhaps, um, you know, we we travel back and forth freely as souls and and um, experiencing different experiences. Um, I, I, you know, I, that that isn't everybody's belief, and I fully appreciate everybody else's you know uh, desire to believe in what they what makes them feel. Um, you know it um feel strong and in faith um for me it's it's more that uh, uh I, I guess i do believe that that you know our energies continue from one life to the next 
Cer- certainly that. Yeah. Where, where you were talking about even just walking down the street and other people sort of adjust and uh, the, the ripples of your actions today sort of continue hereafter. Um, um, I am curious and, and just on a, a personal level, because I, I'm 28 uh, people sometimes uh, either suggest or there, there's sort of a, a back and forth debate between me and my friends and um, of like having kids, having a family and stuff like that. And uh, I feel like this is like a very like built in sort of like mechanism to achieve like meaning in one's life. Um, and certainly it seems like you've gotten a lot of meaning out of your life and you have this connectedness to nature uh, and, and this wisdom about it. And I guess I'm curious if uh, you have any like, I don't know if words of advice is, is the right way of putting it, uh, but in terms of making this decision about having kids and uh, sort of forming meaning in the absence of that, uh, did, was that, you said it wasn't your goal. Um, was this, I I, I don't quite know how to, to frame my question, but do you see sort of what I'm, what I'm getting at? Like, do you... I do. I, I do. I think um, if, if you were my son and you certainly you're at the age that you could be, right. um, I would advise you um, that when it's right, you'll know it. Um, if you're wondering whether you should or shouldn't or, you know, then you have to ask yourself: Are you are you trying to force an answer? Are you trying to are you trying to to force a, a marriage and a, and a family because you think that that's what you're supposed to do, because that's what everybody else is doing and because that's what seems to be the norm. But then one day you'll come along and and you'll meet some gal and you go, you know what, this this makes sense finally. Um, and it, you know, not everybody can be patient and wait for that moment to come along. So you have to find that balancing your own heart as to what is really important with you. The, the important thing about life is it's not about getting everything perfect. It's about adjusting to the imperfections of life and, and getting getting along with it. Um, and it's the same with sailing. You know, it, it's never going to be a perfect sail. But my skills are is adjusting the boat to the to the weather and the environment that I'm going into, and then adjusting my expectations as to what I'm going to get out of the day. So if I think I'm going to make 200 miles, I need to make 200 miles tomorrow, and all of a sudden the wind doesn't show up, and it's hot and it's sticky and there's no wind, I have to adjust my expectations, but I also have to adjust the boat until, until the tire changes, you know. And I think life, you know, um, in that respect of a, of, a, of a spouse and children and and where that future is going to go when you when you make a decision to have kids i think you have to be fully fully prepared to adjust the the course of life at a drop of a hat um for what's going to be best for the entire family unit um unfortunately and sometimes that ends up in divorce and and messiness there. Um, other times it ends up in dissatisfaction and, and unhappiness because you stayed in a relationship too long. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you that I'm, I'm great with, uh, with marital advice or anything like that. But, uh, I do think if you're patient and you, you know, 
sooner or later it'll it'll make some sense the old the old if you can't think it out wait it out type thing and then all of a sudden one day bing there's the answer standing right in front of you and it may be a woman that you knew 20 years ago and and she just happened to be walking across the street again today and and this is the time that you know it became cognizant to you or to her um or maybe somebody new you meet and dolls can go well, where have you been all my life um yeah i don't know if you're familiar uh, with the poet uh rainer rilke uh, but he he has a, a line about that that there are certain questions in life uh that you can really only live your way to the answer um which Very well said, right there. Yeah. yeah. Um, man, I, I got to get more into sailing because the, <laughs> the it seems like there are certain activities uh, or any activity really of like sufficient depth uh, and complexity. It winds up becoming when you apply your mind to it, like rich with metaphors that extend beyond the activity itself. And it, all these things that you're saying, it seems like sailing is just like a great metaphor for life. It, it truly is. And I'm, I'm working on a second book right now that deals exactly with that. It's called If I Could Teach You to Sail. And it's not really about teaching you how to sail, but how um, a friend one time had asked me to teach them to sail. And I can go out and teach you the mechanisms of it and show you how a boat works and you can go sailing. But what they wanted me to teach them was, you know, like the Zen of sailing or, the, you know, right. um, you know, how, and, and you can't teach that. It's something you just have to learn and, and live through life. And so the book is sort of all the different experiences and, and how they've metaphorically taught me how to live life um, through sailing and the stuff that I've learned through sailing, whether it's, um, you know, one particular chapter is about being lost. And uh, I actually use this chapter with a lot of friends to help them figure their way through a particular problem or whatever. But, you know, we're all going to get lost in life at some point or feel like we're lost or, you know, geez, I, I really thought I was going to be a, a, a partner in a law firm at, by the time I was 40. And I, here I am as a, um, a low, low law, low life lawyer at it in the wrong place, but where, you know, it's just not going right. I'm not there and, and I'm lost. And, you know, one of the things in sailing, we have what we call a rum line, which is from where we start to where we finish. And that's a that's a direct line as a, as the bird flies as a crow flies, but, but sailboats never go in a straight line or very seldom go in a straight line. Uh, you often have to tack up wind or the wind shifts or changes your course, and you have to continually monitor and, and adjust your course to get to the destination you're trying to go to. And so that rum line is constantly adjusted. And so maybe you started off to be a lawyer when you were 25 years old with the intent of being a partner in a big law firm at 45 years old. And here you are at 35 and you're not on that track anymore. And you think, oh, I got to turn around and go back to where I started from to get back to where I want to go. And that's not the case in life. What you need to do is go from where you're at right now to where it is you want to be. So you have to constantly adjust from like where you're at right now to where you want to be. So my whole chapter about being lost was I was on a race and uh, as a young man, and I kept wanting to know how far off the rum line we were. And finally, the navigator pulled me aside and said, look, Dave, it doesn't matter how far off the rum line we are. We're not going back to the rum line. That's the long way around. We're going from where we're at right now to where the finish line is. And all of a sudden, my whole, my whole um, understanding of how you get through life changed in that, you know, it's not from where I'm at 
where I was at two years ago when I wanted to do this and how, how do I get back to the course that I was gone there? Life has taken me off course and I need to get from where I'm at today to where I want to go. Um, so, you know, you're right that um, sailing provides an awful lot of metaphors. And uh, the second book I'm working on is, is sort of to outline some of that, how it, how it taught me how to live life. And, um, and hopefully through that, teach you how to sail at the same time. <laughs> yeah. That on the point of the rum line, I, I can see how in the context of sailing and someone says, Hey, we have to get to like from where we're at to where we want to be. That seems much more like the, the reality of that seems much more immediate in the context of sailing than say in the context of one's life, because a lot of people just ruminate and, uh, sort of wallow in disappointment and bitterness about these things. And you certainly can't do that in sailing. I mean, maybe you could, but you wouldn't get anywhere. And having that metaphor handy is useful because then you can realize that when you're doing that, when you're engaging in this disappointment, you're really just sort of flapping in the breeze. Yeah. So, I mean, if you've um, on my whiteboard here, <laughs> we started here and we're trying to sail up to here right yeah. and all of a sudden the wind is taking us over here you know we now have to come across this way to that point as opposed to going back over to here and going that way and right. if you if you're over here and you're going my god i'm off course this life sucks and there's just nothing going wrong and blah blah, blah. you know let's just go down to the rawness of it so you you wander down to the bar and you get drunk at night and this and that and all this stuff and you're just wallowing because nothing is going right in your life you're not doing anything positive to change that. You're kind of forcing yourself to remain in that um, in that hole, the proverbial wind hole. There's no wind going anywhere. And until one day you say, you know, I got to get out of here. And then you figure a way to, to move on from there. Um, or, you know, in sailing, you say, well, I, you know, there's just no wind here. We've got to figure a way to get to where the wind is to get going again. And I think that's really important in life to to um to realize when you get into that hole that you got to get yourself out of it as soon as you can you got to you got to keep moving you got to keep keep working towards the goal even if it's not necessarily in the direction you want to go at least it gets you to some place where you can then make a decision to get from where you're at to where you want to get to this question is particularly salient uh to me and to a lot of people i know because we tend to have like big dreams and uh realistically speaking uh they're not going to work out uh, at least in the way that we we imagine, uh, almost certainly not. And when when you uh, embarked on this journey and you you lived it and you spent the nine and a half months sort of doing it, at the end of when, when you get back to America and you step back on shore, is there it, does the sort of air go out of the balloon? Is there a feeling of withdrawal of like you've had this sort of thing that's almost like a North Star in many ways of like what you wanted to do and now you've done it? Yes, you know, that's a that's a real important part of all of life. Um, and, and I uh, was made aware of it probably in my 30s talking to some of the previous, the older solo sailors I knew at that point in time, we'd already done it. And it's the same with with adventures, whether you're climbing Mount Everest or walking the Appalachian Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail or 
or raising kids or starting a business or if you're in the military there's you know at the end of these things there's a black hole so your life is really really focused on something other and you know when it was great when i got off the boat and there were friends there to celebrate with me and we you know went and had had dinner and some drinks and you know it was a great celebration for a huge accomplishment but a week later you know, you're back home and, you know, friends are complaining because their French fries are cold or the utility company is, you know, telling you, well, I'm sorry, you got to pay this bill tomorrow or we're going to shut your power off. And well, I'll, I'll get I'll get the money to you next week. No, that's not going to happen. And so the air goes out of the balloon, like you say, it's like a black hole. And it's really easy to fall into a, into a serious depression. Like, you know, before my life had meaning every moment of the, of the day. And now it doesn't. Um, I mean, this is, this is, uh, you know, real, real, um, uh, real pervasive in the military. You know, these guys are in Iraq or Afghanistan or someplace or other, and everything they're doing for that period of time is one focused goal. And, and then next thing you know, they're shipped back home and their comrades or friends are in trouble or not in trouble, but they're they're on the edge and you're not, you're sleeping in a nice warm bed in an air conditioned house. And you're thinking about, but you know, I need to be there because those people are, and that's where I'm best at. Um, or you finish to sail around the world and you're like, well, I, I need to get back out there. Right. Or you just climb Mount Everest and you came down and, and, you know, some guy, some guy at the coffee shop says, Oh, where you been for a few weeks? Well, I was, I just climbed Mount Everest. Oh, well, good for you. That's cool. And they don't seem terribly impressed with it at all, you know. <laughs> but you do have to deal with that. Um, and I'm not having kids of my own, but I can imagine, you know, the day after the kids take off for college and the house is empty and quiet, you know, you want to get on the phone like every 15 minutes. How are you doing? How are you doing? <laughs> you know, yeah. because you, your whole focus for the last 20 some years of your life has been these kids and now they're not there, you know, so that again is one of those those milestones in life that you have you have to figure out how to power through and and not let it consume you because it, it certainly can consume you and drag you down did you feel like that was something you had to sort of fight against uh when, when you, you you finished yeah I, I i knew that um i knew what i was headed into because i I'd helped a lot of other solo sailors prepare their boats for around the world races and, and knew what they had gone through and watched it and, and, and lived it with them personally. So I knew what to expect. Um, I knew to adjust my expectations that when I got done with this, there wasn't going to be a whole, there, there might be a, a, a day or two of excitement, but there wasn't going to be a parade and there wasn't going to be a whole lot of fame associated with it. And the phone wasn't going to be ringing off the hook for, you know, Oprah Winfrey and, and, um, you know, Stephen Colbert and these guys want me to come on the shows and tell a story. Um, and that I was just going to, you know, come back home and I was going to, you know, have to build, rebuild my construction company and go back to work and, and, and carry on. Um, but I, I'm not saying I didn't go through some of those pitfalls, but I knew, I knew where I was headed and I knew what I had to do to get through it. Um, fortunately, um, you know, I, I got involved with, um, the Atlantic Cup racing, and they invited me to, to be their kids' education coordinators. So I was able to run a kids' program for that race. Um, 11th Hour Racing tapped me to be an ambassador for them, so I got involved in 
in helping kids through that program. So I had, <clears throat> I was able to parlay what I had experienced into things for the good and mitigate some of the, the black hole experience that we're talking about. But um, one of the really interesting things, though, of being isolated for that long is that, you know, when you work with your hands, you build up calluses on your hands. Maybe you're working in the garden, you build up calluses, and then wintertime comes and you stop working in the garden and you lose the calluses. There's a, there's a callousness we get from interacting with people. Like a lot of my good friends, uh, good sailing buddies and all, you know, we, we throw jar, uh, jabs back and forth each other, kid each other, joke about different things. And also a, a day or two after I'm off the boat, I'm sitting with a couple of the guys and one of them, you know, and I was also, and I was offended because one of them, you know, said something and then just walked away. And I was like, all pissed off at him. The confronting body goes, God, what's wrong with you? And I, I, I finally realized I had lost that sort of callousness to be able to take those interactions from other people and, and, and flow with them, you know, go with a, you know, take the punch and give it back, you know, type of thing. All of a sudden I was offended by things that would never offended me before because I had lost the, the, the day-to-day interaction. I hadn't, had lost my calluses. And that was quite an interesting uh, experience. And it, and it took probably, you know, three or four months before I stopped being overly sensitive to comments that, you know, were normally just meant to give me a hard time. Yeah, that, that's one thing that uh, I, I I guess we, we didn't really talk about. But the fact that if you're going 52 days, like if you go just in the course of your life, if you go like a couple of days where you're not saying any words to any people, you, you, you know, as soon as you go to the coffee shop and you say something like it just feels weird things coming out of your mouth when uh, I think you said the, the longest leg was 52 days. Uh, were you not talking to anybody during that time? Well, I would, I would, I had a satellite phone, so I would make a phone call once a week back home to Mary, um, occasionally to the the weather forecasters as well. So I would, I, I had ability to communicate verbally a little bit, um, a lot of communication through emails and and that thing. So I was, I was still having human human interactions, but they weren't to the extent that you had, you know, if you're one on one with a group of people. Yeah. Um, so not as severe an isolation as say 1969 when when Robin Knox Johnson went around the world and you know maybe had a radio broadcast once a week with a ship that went by or something like that. Yeah. Um, but still quite a bit of isolation compared to what you have in your day to day life. Did, did you after this was done um, and you found a way to sort of uh, turn some of this into positives. You wrote this book, which by the way, the, the name of it, since we haven't mentioned it, uh, Spirit of a Dream, A Sailor's Ultimate Journey Around the World Alone. Um, did did you, you know, this, this, one of the things that happens, I suppose, you mentioned the military, things like having kids, um, even small things. Like I remember going on a, a long backpacking trick uh trip and we every day it was very clear what we had to do and uh you know there was a few of us together uh there was a mission life was a clearly defined when you needed water you would go to the stream filter it uh when it was time to sleep you would set up camp uh time to wake up you knew exactly what you were doing that day and that is so unlike what we experience in the modern world where oftentimes it can feel 
uh, rudderless, um, particularly if you don't set up what are sometimes like arbitrary goals of like, oh, I want to get this promotion or I want to, you know, move to this city, whatever. Um, and that is something that a lot of former military people and even just journalists of war have talked about as being the real hard adjustment where people think, you know, they're the difficulty of the adjustment is, uh, oh, they have PTSD over what happened, which of course, sometimes it is part of the reality. Um, but what I've heard is that oftentimes it's like, man, I come back in this world and things are just weird. Like it's not the same mode of living. You know, back then I would run somewhere and I would save someone's life. Uh, and I had to get there and, you know, dodge whatever. And that's, that's a very, that's highly meaningful. You save someone's life. You know what you have to do. What was that? Was that a weird adjustment? I mean, how do you feel about that? Yeah, very much so. That's, that's what I'm talking about, the black hole. So, you know, when you're out there, every, every decision you make is, 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 uh, specific towards the goal that you're after. Um, it, it all, you know, it's a very focused direction that you're going on. And then you get back into real life and, um, geez, do I, do I want to go work on, do I want to go fix that door for those folks today? Or do I want to go do this? Or actually I got to go to the bank. I got to stop by the post office. I, I don't know. Then it'll be lunchtime. I, I want to work on the book a little bit. And, you know, it's like you say, it's not a very clear defined you know, focus. And so you have to force yourself um, forward and and make those things happen. Much like we were talking about, you know, running out of wind in the hole, you have to, you know, you're rudderless. You have to, you have to force yourself to go forward. So yes, I, I found that to be, um, that's part of what I knew I was get, getting into. Uh, so I was mentally aware of and prepared to have to deal with it doesn't mean that I dealt with it perfectly. I, I know I had, you know, complications and such, but um, for the most part, um, I just had to power on through and, and you know, keep finding things that were going to be important to do today. Complications how? Um, well, like I say, being a little bit rudderless, like, you know, just that motivation sometimes uh, or sitting around with a bunch of friends who wanted to complain about something that was completely meaningless when what really is important is whether or not the autopilot was going to fail tomorrow or not, you know? <laughs> um, and, you know, like I, I always make the, the the comment about complaining about cold French fries, you know? So you're out having a burger and beers and somebody's complaining their French fries are cold. And you're like, you know, for the last nine months, I ate freeze dried food. What's wrong with cold French fries, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's a significant problem to them that, that moment. And it means nothing to me, you know, and so you, I would find myself getting frustrated at that type of thing. Like, why are you complaining about that? What do you got to complain about? Um, so complications uh, maybe is, is a, is a drama word, but, um, but, you know, they're just, you just had to, you know, it just takes time to get through it. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it, and, and then, you know, uh, a lot of things, you know, I guess say the working with the kids programs was great. That gave me some focus. Working on the boat gave me some focus and and slowly, you know, putting the construction business back together because um, I'd been I stepped away from it for probably two and a half years or three years. And so I had to kind of let people know I was back around and I could take on jobs and start to work my way through all that. Um, 
you know, it took a couple of years actually to to come back to some form of normalcy. That's something that I think a lot of people is one of the reasons why they hesitate in doing these sorts of things where I, I took uh, a few years ago, I took a year long sabbatical to go like travel the world. COVID wound up happening, but I still basically managed to like make it work uh, with fewer destinations. Um, but it, it was something that so many people, I was 25 at the time. And so many people were like, oh my God, like, your what does this mean for your career? Uh, aren't you worried about taking a step back and then falling behind and, uh, you know, financial things, et cetera, uh, which are not, um, they are like real concerns. Um, but boy, if that stopped us from doing these kinds of things, how, how sad that would be, you know, of, it, it sounds like it took, a couple of years to get back to uh, what you said, some semblance of uh, normalcy um, and getting your business back up and going. But I, I can't imagine the cost of doing that was anywhere near offsetting the tremendous gain in life experience of sailing around the world. No, not at all. And I, I calculate, you know, that was obviously in the calculation. I was willing to risk all of that. I was willing to I was w willing to risk returning to, you know, no money whatsoever and having to scrape myself up off the ground and, you know, be completely rudderless, almost homeless for the most part until I got my act back. I was willing to I was willing to risk everything to make this passion and life dream happen. Um, and maybe that goes back to the comments of intention, and that you have to intend to make something happen if you're going to do it. And you have to be willing to bet, you know, bet the farm on it. Um, and you know, like you say, when you took that that year off, um, you know, you you factored those calculations into that. You know, you 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 weren't necessarily worried about what is going to do your career. Um, and at twenty five, you shouldn't be because your career is hopefully going to be fifty years from there. Um, so many, you know, it's going to bring so much more to your life to work from especially doing the podcast and stuff when, when you spend a year worth of time traveling around the world and realizing how diverse the world is, you now have a, a much better understanding of how diverse your podcast can be. Um, so a lot of all that plays into the whole um, life experience that, you know, my story is about sailing around the world. Uh, someone else's story can be about chasing a cure for cancer. Someone else's story can be about chasing um how to figure out how how to net negate gravity yeah. and and change our our inter intergalactic travel um you know that's um again i think that's one of the metaphors that comes out of all this is is just life like i always said life is a grand journey you know you got to live it all you have to live it all ways and and um you know whatever's coming down the path at, path at you 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 make an adjustment to either let that entity pass you or or take energy from that or take information or knowledge from that entity as it goes by. Um, I think we all do that somewhat subconsciously. Mm. But I am I'm, I'm also, you know, sometimes I'm I'm sad for the people that um are are strictly focused on perhaps a career goal and a financial um goal. Um, and 
in the belief that reaching that is somewhat like playing pinball. If I get $10 million in the bank, the rest of my life will be beautiful. I'll get free plays on the pinball machine. But um, we all know that that's not reality. You have to you have to plan on getting all of it. <laughs> you know, you have to look to look to try to get all of it. it and then whatever. It, it's like when people talk all the time about like, oh, well, you do that. Like, there's this famous uh, scene in in that movie Wall Street, I think it's called, with uh, Charlie Sheen and. His dream is, you know, oh, I'm going to save up $10 million and then I can go motorcycling around China. It's like, dude, you can do that now for like yeah. not that much money. You really yeah. can. And, you know, you're already living. And so it doesn't really make sense to constantly be looking into the future when you may not be living. You know, it's um, yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely and sad. The true, the true value of the experience is not. That when you're when you end up in Mongolia and the bike breaks down, that you've got enough money in the bank to buy a new bike. The true value of life experience when the bike breaks down in Mongolia to be able to communicate with some of the people and figure out how to get that situation resolved, either get the bike repaired or or find a way to to help somebody else who will help you then get a part you need. You know, that's the interaction that um, is missed by having put millions, I mean, they're, they're guys that put, you know, $100 million in the bank and then, you know, can say, hey, Dave, teach me how to sail. And yeah, I can I can take you out and find you a $2 million boat and I can take you sailing and you can learn how to steer the boat. But I can't give you that experience of having the autopilot break, uh, you know, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and having to fix it or else succumb to the, you know, to your environment. That's that's an experience that you, you can't buy that. Yeah. Um, and that's the riches of doing what we do and and taking that back. But we've got to be able to share that with people or it has no value whatsoever. So, you know, if I can't share my stories or you can't share your stories, then they don't have any value. A hundred percent. And it's so funny that you mentioned that exact thing, because while I was traveling, I had that exact I was in like I was in Bali in like more or less the jungle and my bike broke down and I had to like, I was in the middle of nowhere basically. And was like calling out to people, one of talking to these like kids who were like way better at riding this bike than I was and got it back to like a mechanic. And like some guy was like playing chess in the corner with his friend. We had to like commute, like, yeah, stuff like that is so much more interesting than just being like, take this money, <laughs> make it happen. Well, you, you, you basically, it's basically the exchange of, of, um, of um vulnerability and and humility you know you you have to walk into somebody else's environment and say hey i i need i have a problem here and i i'm hoping that you can help me and people are scared to death to have that humility and show that kind of vulnerability um you know it's like i i don't have a problem you know i just need a new bike and here's a thousand dollars i want that bike right there and and then off you go and there's no no interaction. No, I'm a human. You're a human. How's your life going? My life, my life sucks right now. I'm trying to get this figured out. Well, here I can help you get that. You know, but you know what? I could use a hand moving this, moving these crates into the back room here. Uh, you know, give me a hand with that for a second, and then I'll help you with your bike. You know, and before long, you know, you find out that regardless of the differences you have, we're all human, and 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 things are in balance. You know, absolutely. Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance.
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, um, so it's, you know, it, 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 uh, it all started with a simple, you know, sail off the beach in Indiana some 60 years ago now and, and grew to a passion that, that ultimately be, became just sort of a, uh, a guidebook to living my life. And um, so even, even though, even though I've made the trip around the world, it, it, it hasn't ended at that point. It's continuing to, to carry me on to, to new experiences and using that, that knowledge from that trip around the world to, to grow other experiences and help other people grow in their experiences too. Certainly have. Uh, Dave, we are, we're, we're, we're close to two hours, so I don't want to take up or at least <laughs> well. an hour and a half. Um, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So I think that's a fantastic note to end it on. And like, I just want to say, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I think everyone should go check out your book, uh, spirit of a dream, a sailor's ultimate journey around the world alone. And, uh, if, if, you know, whenever you have your you know book number two coming out, uh, would love to have you back on to chat about that. And yeah, just thank you so much for your time. This was great. No, I, I'm more than happy to. I, I enjoy it. Uh, you know, like I say, our connection goes back to the Petrakis family, and and they were a close family all my life. And and Harry uh, Petrakis, who was a noted author himself, um, and Diana, his wife, you know, always considered me their fourth son, and and uh gave me opportunities that other people didn't trust me with um my sponsors gave me an opportunity to take a boat around the world that um uh, that's a huge you know trust in somebody um and i'm hoping to you know hoping to repay in that and by telling the stories and enjoying the experiences with people sharing the experiences with people um for those that are that are interested in and in more the spirit of the dream is the book uh, it's available on Amazon. Um, there's another book out there called In the Spirit of the Dream or something along that that's, that's uh, about immigration. That's not the same book. Um, but there's also our website, www.spiritofadream.com, that has a little trailer on there um, and some of the story. And there's also bodaciousdream.com and bodaciousdreamexpeditions.com that are the blogs from races or the trip around the world. So there's an awful lot of... Uh, fun stuff on the internet if you want to go search me for deeper and and um learn more about the, the journey but happy to talk with you again sometime it's fun and enjoyable Excellent. appreciate the opportunity yeah Alrighty, dave thank you once again and take care you too thank you all right thank you to dave rerick and thanks for listening to dunk tank i'm duncan gammy see you next time